Hi, my name's Stephen Perez, or as the boys will know me, Francisco. Welcome to our training session and Corian's Kodiak's under-11s boys football team. This was basically sort of a team that came out of the big local process. The large majority of the players are from the big local area, Archers Local in Chatham Medway. Excuse me, I've just got to go and do some coaching, aka shouting at kids. So, how is everybody? Good, good. school? Good. Has anybody got anything they want to share with us? Yeah. Okay, um, let's start from this end. Yeah, I smashed Daniel, it on the floor yesterday. Daniel smashed it on the floor. Um, Tuesday, I went to see Gillingham versus Tottenham on Oh, and Gillingham won? Yes. Very good. Eric? I went to Wembley and watched England versus Montego. Wow. Are you dead for saying you're an England fan now? Uh, yes, we are. Oh, fantastic. Right, so listen, what I want us to focus on today is hard work. Yes? Yeah. Thursday, what have we got? Futsal tournament at Victory Academy. It'll be a lot of fun. How many players have we got? Twelve. Okay. Four players on the blue dots. And can we have two on the green dots on both sides? Well done, Paddy. Well done. Come on, James. Good effort. Good effort. They own this time. We're here to guide them, but actually, they're having to make decisions. And also sort of the mental health, the physical health, the enjoyment from it. As much as it needs to be hard work, it still needs to be fun. Come on, let's up the tempo, quicker, quicker. I need to send this ball. So when Alpha says go, I'm gonna release. Go! My name is Vlad. Uh, I am assistant to uh, head coach Francisco. Uh, I joined the team uh, two years ago. The first season I started, we were unbeaten for probably five or six months. It is the best team in Medway District. We're teaching them how to be organised on the pitch, which hopefully they'll translate into normal life. These boys weren't getting in teams. Their background's too complex. Poverty. No sort of car. It's all those sorts of things. Sport, when it's delivered in the right way and sort of inclusive, meets those big local outcomes because it's bringing people together. It's bringing people together that actually would never come together. You've got a Mongolian family here, Polish, Slovakian, boys with Indian heritage, Nigerian, Sierra Leone, Slovakia, Ireland, Spain. Now, all their parents are sitting up there, you know, watching, getting on and sharing things as well. Um, I think even if it's just sharing space and time, even if they're not talking, being together, bringing people together. So I think sport can be a massive, massive sort of power for that. Great goal, Rama. Great goal. Hello, my name is Ryan Herman. And what you were just hearing was a training session with the all-conquering Ancorian Kodiaks, who are coached by Stephen Perez from Luton Arches Big Local in Chatham, Kent. They feature in a level playing field, a recent essay I wrote for Local Trust. Local Trust is the charity which delivers Big Local, a radical experiment in seeing if residents can create change in often disadvantaged communities by putting power, responsibility and critically money in the hands of local people. In this particular essay, I visited five big locals which invested some of that £1 million fund into sport-related events and projects to find out how sports has been able to rebuild and reinvigorate communities from Cumbria to the South Coast. I was joined by guests from big locals, including Stephen and Matt Leach, for what proved to be quite an intense and lively discussion. And here we go. Today we're looking at a level playing field, a new essay from Ryan Herman on how sport can unite and transform communities. Let's introduce the fantastic panel of people we've got assembled around the table today. Uh, my name is Gary Rip. I'm the current worker for Jewsbury Mall Big Local. I'm Star Zaman. I'm here to represent Jewsbury Mall Big Local Partnership. 
I'm Ryan Hearn, I'm the author of A Level Playing Field, also the local trust journalist at large. Stephen Perez, worker and resident of Arches Local in Medway. Uh, I'm Jo Melchior, I'm a consultant to national governing bodies about community sport and I have the privilege of working with some big locals. I'm Kyle Adams and I work with four big local areas in Kent and I'm co-founder of Primal Roots, a social enterprise that uses community sport. I'm Simon Lansley, I'm an ex-journalist. I run an online platform showcasing organisations using sport for social impact called Connect Sport. And I also work with a national network called the Sport for Development Coalition, which is about 60-odd charities supported by Sport England, Laureus and Comet Relief. So Ryan, you spent quite a lot of the last three months bringing together some fantastic stories of big local areas working with sport in a whole range of different ways. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your essay and some of the great stories you encountered on the way? Yes, so firstly, thank you so much all for being here this afternoon. I'm the author of the latest in the series of big local essays, which, as you will discover, is kind of notionally about sport, but really is a, at its heart is about building communities and how to build those communities. Recently, I was appointed as the local trust journalist at large to spend the next year going around the country and documenting the most fascinating projects around 150 big local communities, as well as the people behind those projects. To quote from the introduction to A Level Playing Field, the playwright David Hare recently said, a city is not a city without a post office, a theatre or a football ground. But a report published in April of this year stated that one in five post offices are under the threat of closure. And according to the Theatres Trust, there are dozens of theatres around the country that face an uncertain future. Post offices, theatres, football grounds are where people gather. It's where they form communities. And if you take them away, then people are more likely to stay indoors. They become more introverted. They become more isolated. And all sorts of attributable problems develop from that. And in my initial pitch to write this essay, I talked about sport being the great British success story of this decade. Few products have been exported as successfully as the Premier League. And the London Olympics was almost universally held as a triumphant statement by a new confident Britain. Sport was also one of the few aspects of modern life that succeeds in uniting us on a mass scale, irrespective of class, race or politics. In December 18, the Daily Mirror reported, the UK has lost 1,295 grass pitches, swimming pools, sports halls and athletics tracks during the past two years. And following a season in which English clubs were overwhelmingly dominant in European football, culminating with Liverpool winning the European Cup for the sixth time, do that for Gary's benefit, <laughs> partly mine as well, the Guardian published a story in June of this year revealing that 700 council football pitches have been lost since 2010. So there appears to be a widening gap between consumption and participation. That isn't true everywhere, but I think it is true in big local communities. To give one example, kids were barred from the local playing fields in Barrow Island in Cumbria. So you had a situation where parents were telling me when I met them, kids are spending all their time in their rooms playing FIFA 19, but couldn't play the real thing at a pitch that was just across the road from them. So perhaps it's not surprising to learn that providing sports facilities consistently featured among the top priorities for big locals when they were assessing out their initial plans across five or 10 years. I had a criteria that I wanted to fulfill and not only to cover a variety of sports, but also the projects and events that are encouraging participation across a broad cross-section of demographics. So in Heart of Sidley in Sussex, we were focusing mainly in kids through BMX. In Dewsbury Moor, we were looking at how to bring together white and Asian communities through rugby league and rounders through a club called Batgirls, which was founded by a group of young Muslim women. And in terms of a sporting event that has managed to bring communities together, I don't think you'll find many better examples than the East Cleveland Klondike bike race. East Cleveland Villages is made up of 11 communities spanning approximately 15 kilometres, where the smallest village has a population of around 200 people, the largest is around 5,000. They all have different priorities, different needs, but all are meant to should have an equal say in how big local funds should be spent. 
They struggled for several years to find a common voice and to work out how they could bring these communities together. Then they did what another big local has done and probably will never do, to appoint a tourism officer. She had a eureka moment to bring a cycle race to East Cleveland, which now attracts top professional male and female riders from across Europe and is broadcast in Eurosport. But what I really loved about that story was how it inspired a group of people to reopen and take ownership of their village hall because they feared it would be sold off by a local council. Paula Miller was formerly a big local delegate for the village of Boozbeck, and she said, since the mine shut, we've had nothing. Even the post office closed down. So you can understand why people sigh and say, I don't want to get involved because the spirit is lost. And I said, I bet we could all work together to open up the village hall. A lady came for long from the Village Hall Association of Great Britain. At that meeting, anyone who wanted to be involved put their hands up to say, I want to be a trustee. We formed a committee, we secured an alcohol license. We're now talking about extending this hall. If it wasn't for the Klondike, that wouldn't have happened. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that putting a cycle race on once a year is some sort of panacea. It's going to cure all the problems and all the ills. The Big Local is about regenerating and building and restoring confidence, which the Klondike has achieved. It's also about changing perceptions, both externally and within a community in itself. At the end of the chapter about Luton Arches uh, in Chatham, in Kent, there's a great quote I love from Stephen Perez. He says, our schools aren't the greatest. We've got problems with drug dealing and dependencies. But we've got one school filled for three primary schools. We can't afford access to secondary schools and they don't want us there anyway. And then Stephen says something that stuck with me about how kids from areas like Luton Road are judged. And why sport, if only for a brief moment in time, gives them a chance to level the playing field. Why is it more important to be a winner here, he says. It's because nobody expects us to win and everyone is expecting us to lose. Between these five big locals that I've visited, they've restored a BMX track, they're redeveloping a famous rugby league clubhouse, they've created a bike race that's broadcast around the world, they've built a sports and community centre, it's the first building of its kind and it well over a generation in that community in Barrow Island. They've taken on property developers to reclaim a disused football stadium, they've tackled isolation and loneliness, they've united communities that were divided, they've even got people suffering from Parkinson's disease to train in a boxing gym. Collectively, they've got thousands of people across all ages involved in doing all sorts of sports. In conclusion, I can't stress enough what a privilege it was to be able to tour the country and meet people behind the projects, three of whom are here today. They're trying to revitalise communities, often in difficult circumstances, in areas that are ranked among the most deprived, ones that have been classed as left behind, that understandably become sceptical when a new idea or project or scheme that offers a promise of trying to improve their communities comes along because they feel they've heard it all before. And yet these people are making a change. They are making a difference. And I hope you enjoy reading their stories as much as I enjoy writing them. Thank you. It feels like you came back quite energised from the trip around. I'm quite surprised because you look back at your career as a writer. You've been editing 442. You've been quite deep in the sporting press. Is this an element of sport you've ever looked at or is it something that feels quite new to the sporting conversation? My first job was working in a local newspaper, a group of papers in West London. I did a story about a Fulham fan called Dennis Bailey. And he was watching a broadcast on London Tonight and it was about how QPR and Fulham were going to be merged and they were going to bulldoze Craven Cottage. He was yes. watching that... <laughs> <laughs> he was watching that broadcast with his father and his father was of that generation that never showed any emotion, with a very stiff upper lip. And he was watching it with him and suddenly he saw his father getting emotional. He started to well up because they were going to destroy the football ground. And it was a thing that they did together. It was their little community. 
Then Dennis went off and thought, right, I'm going to do whatever I can to save the club. He went off to the libraries, he read up all about the history of that land, all about the history of the, the building, and he realised that the main stand there is a very famous stand of a famous architect. He made it a grade two listed building, made sure the cottage, which is in the corner of the ground, which is unique of any ground anywhere in the world, was also put a preservation order on that. Ultimately, it's my favourite story because it was about community. Going along to football, enjoying that communal feeling is what I enjoy most about, about actually going to a match. It isn't necessarily the game itself. It's about the fact that sport develops these communities. Star, Gary, you're, you're both nodding all the way through Ryan's answer there. Both of you have been deeply involved in rugby league, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. And I, a guest who wasn't able to make it today, she's, she's out campaigning in some election that's happening somewhere. She said that she felt, as, as a national sports figure, that rugby league probably did community better than any other national sport. Do, do you think that's fair? First and foremost, thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate the introduction, firstly, and then secondly, for being so accommodating and when he came down. Uh, he came down and he'd never been to a mosque. Was it no, no, not at all, no. Uh, I worked in a, in a community development role for the Rugby League, funny enough, uh, uh, one of the best clubs in Leeds called Leeds Vinyls. My role primarily was for that. Yes, it is, it's, it's pretty advanced in terms of community development work and it's there for everybody to take part in. But there has been some, some challenges for that as well in terms of money and the revenue coming in. That's why sometimes maybe it's a little bit behind in terms of a, a national development. But what we're trying to do in Jews Be More is it's integrate into people's lives. It's integrate into everybody's mindset, the mosques. Gabby's been doing a wonderful job in terms of getting the kit and making sure, making the links between the organisations. So Jews Be More Rugby Club, as a venue, he's would negotiate prices and all these types of things and maybe even offer things for free. And as I said, that was before the big local came around. So for Gabby to be involved even post big local is something that's been a continuity. And that's the thing, that's what's happened over the last six or seven years. The other bit is the local trust and the big local nationally. As a project, I feel like if you go on in Jews Be More now, everybody knows about it. Everybody knows that there's something that everybody's trying to pull in the same direction. Uh, whether that be a community sport programme or whether that be a community development programme, they're both working in the same direction. And I think that's the bit about it. The community part of it is really shining through. And we as people from the partnership have found that very beneficial. Gary, you've been both a community development worker and a coach. And I, having run a community football team myself, I sometimes wonder whether the two roles are almost interchangeable. They blend from one into the other. What, what's been your experience moving from being a rugby coach to being a community development worker? For me, when I coached, I coached, I'd never played rugby before. So I went in kind of blind to it. And then you were coaching the kids, getting to know the parents, getting to know people, getting to know how kids worked. I kind of stuck with them for, a, for around four or five years. And then I felt I got to a level where they maybe needed somebody that could play. So it, it were kind of letting them kids go and move on. but. You had some kids that, that carried on, and some are now at Wakefield, some are at Castleford. For me, it's like the sense of satisfaction when you see someone come together, when you see somebody achieve something. In the beginning, there were, you know, our, our big local didn't run as smoothly as what, it, as what it does now, but we've built a lot of bridges from there and progressed to where we are now, and it's just, yeah, it's nice to see. Steve, you're another big local worker, community activist, engagement worker and coach. How do you see sport and community fitting together. You're in Chatham, aren't you, the Arches local? I am, indeed. Um, I think it's interesting. I think all I see myself is just, I'm a dad and I'm somebody that lives somewhere just looking to sort of solve problems. And one of the problems that we had locally was the fact that young children, young people weren't involved in organised sport. So nowhere for us to actually play, no equipment to play with. 
and also sort of the structure that sat around that, especially if we were just looking at football being a sort of the most popular sport locally was very limited. So when we looked at the football teams that were there locally, from being a football coach myself, a lot of the teams that were there weren't reflective. They didn't actually look like us. Medway is sort of predominantly sort of white, working class area, but actually the football teams that sat around didn't reflect that at all. So one of the key things that I did when we were setting up the football team that Archers Local sponsored was basically just saying to kids, whoever wanted to play, could play. Some of the barriers for the kids playing were families didn't have a car, even sort of getting to the home games because there's no football pitch near us, you have to be able to drive. So some of the things we sort of pulled cars, the bigger kids gave their football boots to kids with the smaller feet and sort of stuff was shared about. It enabled not just their parents, but actually the young people to play together, meet different cultures, experience different things. And also it's about equipping them, or making them understand what winning is. And winning isn't necessarily the other team having one and you having the two. Actually, it can be quite the opposite. You know, some of your sort of winning can be some games that you lose. But if we've done our best or if we've learned from it, that's winning because we entrench the team around being nice. And the kids often say to me, what, even the other team? And I say, especially the other team. What does our team lack? It lacks technical ability because there's a reality around sort of the time that kids have to play. But what the team doesn't lack is mental resilience because these are kids that actually disappointment is something that actually is commonplace so they don't always expect to win when you give them the tools to have sort of like a winning mindset they can do really well with it. Carl you create micro communities of, of people who run through woods don't you? I run a project or social enterprise called Primal Roots so we run it as a business in the true spirit of social enterprise so we exist to make as much money as we can to reinvest in our social goal which is to help people experiencing homelessness and addiction. If you want to join one of our sessions, then you would pay as you would do a normal gym. So you pay membership or you pay uh, blocks of sessions or a one-to-one. But if you're experiencing homelessness or addiction, then, then it's free. So we do everything you can do in a gym, but we do it outdoors in the woods in Kent. It was one of the ways that I overcame, or at least I'm overcoming, because I don't think you ever get there, my struggles with alcohol. It led me to a pretty dark place. When I finally got there into the woods, it was, it was like I came alive. And we just wanted to give that back to as many people as possible. And I think we've mentioned stuff today that actually harks back to our primal instincts, which is about community. That's what we try and create in, in the woods of Kent. You know, we've got people who, you, know, you wouldn't know how much money they earn, you know, wealthy people people that have not got a penny. When they're all in the woods working out, it's like, we don't ever tell anyone's story for them. They, they tell their own stories and people are opening up and you've got opportunities opening up in terms of employment. So just trying to reframe the fitness industry in terms of community so we can provide a platform through which they can apply in other parts of their lives. So if you are getting up at, and coming to our sessions at seven in the morning, that's a good, good indicator that you're going to be able to get up and get to work and we're also really trying to reframe the term or even the concept of failure you know failure obviously has got negative connotations but sport you know is primarily about about failure I just looked up a quote in when you think of the man Michael Jordan you wouldn't think of failure it says I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career I've lost almost 300 games 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and I've missed it. I failed over and over again and that is why I succeed.
And it's the, it's the message you'll see in, in you know, I work, I've got the pleasure of working with um, Steve, very part-time, but heard stories about his teams and, and winning in style is a really important message um, to communities because there's nothing worse than a winner who doesn't win in the right way. There was an American football coach. He didn't want to see over-celebrations when his team scored. He said to his team, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. I think there's a lot of that going on in these big local communities. There's a lot of winning. I think that's an indicator of the humility of, of people. That's the purest form of sport, and I think that's being replicated in big locals up and down the country. Joe, you've been writing lots of notes, and I see passions right in the centre <laughs> of, your, of, of your list of key words. Yeah, I'm a shocking scribbler during uh, these sort of things. I, I, I latch onto words, and... Um, I, for my sins, am often brought in by national governing bodies uh, when they're on the naughty step because they're not doing very well with participation. So they get people like myself and the wonderful star over there who can actually speak to people. We need the gatekeepers. We need the sticky people. We need the trusted people. Organisations like this are an absolute godsend to me. And I've written down a few words. Spirit, which was mentioned earlier, because it is spirit. It, and it's finding that local spirit, which, you know, which everyone around the table has talked about. And then passion and charisma, because people I get to meet are fantastic. People who are doing it for the right reasons. They believe, they care, and they're not doing it just because it's a target from government to do. It's very easy for us to sort of blame the loss of playing fields, to blame technology and people playing on things. They're, they're easy ways to explain inactivity. And I think sometimes we have to see beyond that. I can remember once meeting a community event uh, when I was promoting uh, swimming, free swimming. A grandmother walked past with her daughter and her two granddaughters. And I stopped the mother and asked her if she would like some free swimming lessons. And before I'd even got to the end of my sentence, the grandmother stepped forward and went, no, we're not interested. Why? She went, I don't swim. And it's generations because the grandmother didn't swim, therefore the mother was never introduced to it, so therefore the grandchildren aren't introduced. There's generations of people who have not connected. So we need to make that connection and that connection starts at a localised level. Simon, listening to all of this, so there's you know, potentially a multi-billion pound shared prosperity fund post-Brexit. Do you think sport and community sport ought to have part of that? Yeah, and I think perhaps that's part of the problem in that national psyche. We do have sport as elite participation and we have it as community and grassroots. Because you guys are all doing it bottom up and credit to the local trust because you really are empowering those people at the ground level, which is where it matters most. But I think what's exciting for me, my, my journey coming from the, the national media and elite sport and working with a lot of governing bodies, I thought the London 2012 Olympics might might be a precursor to something that would happen faster, but that's okay because I think we're really getting getting there now. I think what's really interesting, if you look at the DCMS strategy in at the end of 2015, this was about how do we drive participation without thinking about what we're doing. And now, because of that DCMS strategy with five key social outcomes, which were about physical and mental well-being, individual development, social or community development and economic development. And then also, something we don't really talk about in the UK much, but internationally there's sustainable development goals about gender equality, about communities, safer communities. And to go back to your question, Matt, there is a mood. When we look at everything in the media, there's a disenchantment, there's a disenfranchisement. But actually, if you look at where you guys are working in your communities, we are tapping into a sense of personal responsibility. 
I think the exciting thing that you're doing here is we're bringing those networks together. A couple of the organisations I work with, Sport England, Local Area Pilots and Laureus, with a model city project they're doing. What they're essentially doing there is allowing communities to design their own projects. So we talk about this, the ABC model, the asset-based community development. Sometimes that's complex, sometimes it's long-winded, sometimes it's a bit more expensive. But what we're finding out on a national level is that it's more efficient, it's more economically viable to do it bottom up and empower those people who are embedded their communities. It's about building trust and respect in those communities. That is not a short term, it's, it takes a long time. If you visit Dewsbury Moor Rugby League Club, it's been all about community from the start. But if you back away and you look at, at sport funding, it's traditionally been quite a top-down culture, hasn't it? I mean, certainly if you look at Sport England in the past or if you look at the, the ways in which national governing bodies have engaged with the game, it hasn't necessarily come from the bottom up. I was born and bred Wolverhampton, went to Wolverhampton Comprehensive. Sport was born of community and I think a lot of people want to see it go back there. I love big sport. Wolves got promoted the Premier League. I'm delighted. But we have to recognise we've become obsessed with winning medals. You know, if you look at the problems that sport is facing, some of the big governing bodies, I'm not going to point them out, but corruption, doping. While we're acknowledging this vague term, the power of sport, Nelson Mandela's amazing quote, we must also acknowledge the difficult parts of it. And so I think that's about a new way of thinking about sport. It's about reframing it. That's difficult for perhaps for some big governing bodies because they were designed to drive participation, win medals behind the scenes, but not people don't realise this, but a lot of governing bodies are really reframing what they're doing. I agree with what Simon's just said. Having worked for national governing bodies, unfortunately, they have been at the mercy of strategies. Management have then shifted down to the people who work in the sports, sporting continuums, medal chasing, and for participation figures. We have to go back and start again. We have to go for quality as opposed to quantity. A quality of experience is easier to sustain and easier to maintain than just something that is just a tick box event. Carl? Maybe governing bodies have had their day. Rightly or wrongly, we have to look at community sport and sell it to, to people in terms of economics. There's no doubt that what these communities are doing in big local areas is a way to save a lot of money for the NHS, that, that's obvious. And in terms of addiction and recovery and homelessness, which are closely related. There's a book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari, and he talks about the rise of depression, anxiety and addiction being a direct correlation between that and how people have lost connections to community. And we've heard it said around this table, sport is the almost a byproduct. It's the thing that unites people, that brings them around the table in the first place. There's a study, a famous study, Rat Park, two rats in a cage with one bottle of water and one that's been dosed with heroin. The rats quickly get addicted to heroin because they, they get the buzz from that straight away. And then they do another study with rats in a big cage with lots to do, like the Thorpe Park of, of rats' uh, cages. And they put water there and they put a heroin bottle there and the rats don't touch the heroin. You know, they've got activity, they're moving, they've got connection to each other uh, as well as the, the community. And obviously Johan Howie goes into great detail about the connections that we've lost in terms of our makeup as humans. I think if we can recreate these connections between each other and community, there's a, a massive impact on the local economy. There's a lot of talk now about social prescribing. So... GPs are prescribing activities for people 
But we've seen firsthand at Primal Roots the devastation that prescription drugs have on people, every bit and sometimes worse than recreational drugs. We need to tackle this and community activity, community sport needs to happen in every community. And it is happening, you know, big locals, not by any means unique, but they're, they're good places to look at what can happen when you trust people with a little bit of money. Because it is a little bit of money and what they're doing with it is, is incredible. I think the governing bodies have come from a place where they were delivering sports participation and it is difficult to turn a super tanker. If we can combine the authenticity that you guys have got with that top level, and there's an honest appraisal of, of, of that as well. You were talking about rugby league, working where you are. Mm -hmm. You're talking about running in the woods. If your audience said, that's not for me, mm -hmm. are you prepared, really, hand on heart? And that goes back to your point about authenticity. Mm -hmm. Authenticity that is working for your audience, because that is what, is, I'm not saying it's an empire, but it's what's built that, and it's solid, and it's rock solid. So I think if we can take all that logic, and then we can start to educate the governing bodies. They're really willing to do it, but there's a lot of people in big organisations who've been there for a long time doing the same thing. So how can we get away from that structured thinking at the same time, have the infrastructure that will make this go nationally? Look at things like Park Run and Good Gym. It's definitely happening and it's a really exciting time. I agree with you, Simon. NGBs on the whole are super tankers, you know, especially the very big sports. But I think it's incredibly encouraging that there's two people at this table who work with NGBs and have a passion for community sports. So you're right, they are listening. Gary? I think it's about finding these people that are in the community that, that want to do it, that are well known, that can attract kids. Because in every community there's always big characters, there's always well-known people. You can give them tools to, to do this yourself, you know, offer these free coaching courses. Little stuff like that that's not going to cost the earth. For me, because I'd never played rugby and I didn't know much about it, I didn't see it. I've ne I never saw it as coaching a team. I saw it as bringing a group of young lads together. I concentrate on a lot outside of the game as well, so keeping the kids together when they're not playing rugby, going out for food, taking them to cinema. I just think we need to empower more people in, in the areas with the tools to, to be able to deliver it, you know, without having to have big organisations. And like, like you rightly pointed out, people bringing their model and their idea that might not necessarily fit us, but they come in, they'll tick a box, you know, Drew's remote, bottom 5% deprived areas, we've come in, we've done this and we've gone. I think Big Local has been brilliant for Drew's remote, the impact that it's had is massive. I think this is the problem that we've had in certain areas is that we're paralysed by the fear of failure and that, that it paralyzes to the point where actually we don't do anything because it's actually better to not do anything and not be disappointed or to do something and for it to fail. Actually, to get to the point that you want to get to, it doesn't always sort of look like it should do on the tin. It's actually not trying to make people fit inside the box, but actually build the box around them. That's been a fantastic conversation. We're apparently going through a revolution in sporting journalism at the moment. I turn on my phone in the morning and I have an app from The Athletic which fills my inbox with any number of really important stories from the world of sports. So this morning it was something about Aubameyang maybe walking out on Arsenal if they don't qualify for Europe. Mike Ashley selling Newcastle for 300 million to a, a Mexican consortium. But I, I think what today's podcast has shown is that Actually, there's an incredible richness of stories out there, often much more important and powerful, that come from grassroots sport, from the place where community and sport comes together. I'm really grateful to everybody who's contributed around the table today, and I'm going to ask Ryan to now sum up. Tricky part of doing some of these essays is you can go off in so many different tangents, and sport is such a broad subject, and I, I deliberately avoided going to the areas of mental health or well-being and things like that because 
it was just trying to keep it really structured, keep it simple and focused on the idea of, of community. But the very simple, basic level was working with kids to get them to make friendships early on, to get them out of the house a lot of the time in summer holidays when they might not necessarily do that. And the Fit and Fed programme does that brilliantly and gives kids a wide range of sports to, to choose from. That making friends thing is a really powerful element of sport. And teams that I played with when I was a, a teenager, I'm still friends with them now and I'm you know knocking on for 50. What big local, I think, achieves that you don't necessarily achieve at a national level, the great understanding the needs of that community. They go to people and say, what do you want? That bottom-up approach, I think that's something that hopefully will be built upon, hopefully big local is just a starting point of a conversation of how we can do things differently and just do things more effectively by just understanding things at a really localised level. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I would urge you to go to localtrust.org.uk to hear some of the others in this series. And as a new journalist at large, I hope you will be hearing from me again soon as I travel the country to find the most exciting and inspirational projects happening across 150 big local communities. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.